Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and welcome to Warfare, a podcast that is on the front line of military history. Each week, twice a week, I bring you cutting-edge military histories, new historical findings, and we place current world events into their proper historical context. In fact, that's exactly what we're doing in this episode. As President Putin builds up his troops on the Ukrainian border, we're joined by the acclaimed war historian, veteran, and war correspondent, Professor Chris Bellamy. He is the author of Absolute War, Soviet Russia in the Second World War. Chris takes us through Ukraine's long history of conflict, from the Russo-Turkish wars of the 1700s, through revolutions, famines, world wars and cold wars, to bring us right up to the present day. I know you're going to love this one, it is a fascinating history, so please pop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and now, with just one simple click, you can rate us on Spotify as well, which is a great new feature for the new year. But now, here is the ever-brilliant Chris Bellamy on war conflict and the history of Ukraine. Enjoy. Hi Chris, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. It's been a while, and in fact I looked through because I had to check this. You were our first ever guest on this podcast. You did an excellent episode on the Siege of Leningrad. So tell us, it's been a while, how is your new year going? My new year is going fine. My wife is back from uh, Zimbabwe where she works for a major NGO. She managed to pick up COVID on the way, thanks to the uh, way that they ran Heathrow and the buses taking people from the terminal Ah. to the quarantine hotels. But she's tested negative. They let her out before Christmas and she's fine. Oh, well, that's so good to hear you were able to spend Christmas together at least. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on during what sounds like it's been a pretty turbulent Christmas period. Well, one of the things about the current situation is it wasn't turbulent at all. We had a very quiet Christmas and it was very good. That is good to hear because we're actually talking about a bit of a different turbulence, I suppose, today. We're talking about 
President Putin's ultimatums, his recently reported plans to launch an attack on Ukraine involving up to 175,000 troops. I suppose we could describe that as pretty turbulent. And in fact, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine who works on the uh, the satellite intelligence, and they were telling me that this could involve the movement of up to 100 battalions alongside armour and artillery. So... We have to look into the history of this, Chris. We need to understand how we got to this point, this worryingly climactic point. So take us back. Take us back to the beginning. Where did all of this begin for Ukraine? It began, I suppose, in the late 18th century. To the west of Russia, the Russian Empire, there was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And at the end of the 18th century, there were three things, three events known as partitions of Poland. And as a result, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was broken up between Prussia, Austria, Hungary, and of course, our great friends, the Russians. The other people who are involved in this are the Ottoman Turks, whose the gradual decline of whose empire was a, a major factor in the history of the 18th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century. And that has given us, of course, some of our current problems, including the Middle East. When the Middle East was ruled by the Ottoman Turks, it, in some ways, it was less of a problem. So that's the start. And I suppose we need to go back to the Russo-Turkish War of 1768 to 74 and the Russo-Turkish War of 1787 to 92. Now, in both cases, the Russians, whose army had been modernized under Peter the Great and was a very professional European-style army, the Russians did very well militarily. In that first Russo-Turkish War of 1768 to 1774, they occupied quite a lot of territory. And in fact, they could have had more territory if there hadn't been lots of doings afoot among the other European countries to prevent the expansion of the Russians in the East. Russia first emerged as a major player in European politics during the Seven Years' War of 1756 to um, 1763. As my um, history master used to say at school, why do you learn dates in history? It's actually to establish cause and effect. So that's why dates are important. Anyway, so Russia becomes a major European power, having actually defeated the Prussians, who are pretty formidable on some occasions. And uh, they occupied quite a lot of territory in that first war. And in 1783, after that war, they occupied a big area to the north of the Crimea and mainland Ukraine to the north and east of Crimea. So these are the areas, the very precise areas, which are pre precisely in question during the recent Russian occupation of Crimea and involvement in the civil war in eastern Ukraine, in the Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian bits of Ukraine. 
So if you don't understand the history, you wouldn't have a clue what was happening. If you do understand the history, then it becomes fairly obvious that we've, we've actually been here before. In 1783, therefore, the Russian, Russians occupied the Crimea, the peninsula. It's the same shape as the Isle of Wight, but it's quite a bit bigger. And one of their best generals, not the senior general who was from the ANSEF, but uh, Lieutenant General Alexander Vasilyevich Suvorov, who was Russia's greatest general, generally reckoned to be, was sent to uh, survey the new, the new territory. And he stumbled on a harbour on the western side of the Crimean Peninsula. And one of Suvorov's famous diktats was Grasamere, which is a bit like the French coup d'oeil, and it means ability to judge instantly by eye. And with his Grasamere, he said, crikey, or whatever the Russian for that, is nowhere on the peninsula, or indeed on the entire Black Sea, is there a harbour where a fleet could be more safely and conveniently quartered. And that, of course, was Sevastopol. And it wasn't called Sevastopol before. I can't remember the Turkish name. But anyway, they, the Russians called it Sevastopol, which is from the Greek, it means magnificent city. And the Turkish hadn't built a harbour there before. This is something brand new, something that is, is seen as being a real strategic advantage for the Russians. Correct. And it was just like the cat that got the cream, if you like. So the Russians is, is began building a harbour and fortified it. And this is very important because Sevastopol comes up again in Russian history twice. And it's very emotive for them. And the first time it comes up, of course, in our history is the Crimean War. Yes, of course. So we're talking 1853 here, aren't we? Yeah. There we go. We know our dates, Chris. This is the important thing. <laughs> so why did the British and the French and the Turks and the uh, Piedmontese, who later became the Italians, there was no state of Italy at this point. Why did they besiege Sevastopol? Well, the Russian Black Sea fleet was a, a very formidable fleet and it defeated the Turks at Battle of Sinope, largely because they were using explosive shells, which is a bit unfair against wooden ships. But of course, up against the British and French, particularly who had iron-framed ships and with some with armor they didn't think this was a fair fair match so the russian fleet skedaddled back into sevastopol and that is why the british and french and italians and turks decided to a went for the crimea and b to besiege sevastopol and so the siege of sevastopol it went on for months Various battles were fought around it, including, of course, the famous Battle of Balaclava, Charge of the Light Brigade and all that. Absolutely, yes. And eventually, the British and, and French and Sardinians and Turks forced the, the fortress city to give way. And 
again, this is very important, particularly to understand the Russian view of all this. Uh, and you can't look at this without looking at the Russian side as well as the Ukrainian side. And there was a young artillery officer at uh, Sevastopol, and his name was Leo Tolstoy, as in War and Peace. And in fact, many of the battle scenes and, and aftermath of battle scenes in War and Peace are based on his observations at um, Sevastopol. Now, Tsarist Russian censorship being what it was, it wasn't allowed to do reportage, as, as you, it's called in journalism, describing gruesome battle scenes for propaganda reasons, uh, for censorship reasons. So instead, Tolstoy set down his thought, his observations in a series of sketches called Sevastopolsky Raskazi. Sevastopol stories. And in the last of them, the Russians are pulling out of Sevastopol and moving north uh, across a bridge as the British and French move in. And as they get to the north side of the bridge, a Russian soldier turns around and he raises his fist in a mixture of anger and fury and hatred. And that's how Stoy describes it. So it, don't tell the Russians that it's okay to give Sevastopol back to the Ukrainians who are then going to join NATO, if that makes sense. That's uh, <laughs> the long and short of it. It makes a lot of sense, especially if you're losing Sevastopol to the British and the French, and then you potentially can see it in NATO hands, of course, Britain and France being key members of that organisation. You can see where these long entrenched divisions start to come back to life, can't you? I'm going to fast forward a bit and then come back. If that's yep, right. go ahead. After, after Ukraine became an independent country, in 1991, the facilities of the various harbours and docks at Sevastopol were split between the new Ukrainian Navy and the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And that arrangement was due to continue for some time. But clearly, with Ukraine hoping to join NATO, this caused the Russians some considerable concerns. And that is undoubtedly, in my view, one of the reasons why they annexed or re-annexed Crimea in 2013. Now, if I can now rewind back to the 19th century, the Russian Empire has got most of what is now Ukraine. Some of the territory went after the First World War, went to Poland, and the, the Russians kept the rest of it. It's also just important to mention that a number of important Russian figures, particularly cultural figures, were of Ukrainian origin. One was the, the one the great writer, Nikolai Gogol. Russia, where are you flying to answer? She gives no answer, which is a very good question for, for now as well. And the other one was Tchaikovsky, the composer. So a lot of quite important cultural figures in Russian culture were actually of Ukrainian origin. And a lot of the intelligentsia in Ukraine were Russophiles, and they adopted Russian culture much like 
I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sort of say people in Scotland, for example, had English-style lifestyles, or at least the, the wealthy ones did. Conversely, the Ukrainian peasantry, who were largely illiterate, were important in developing a written Ukrainian language, which at that point used the Russian Cyrillic script. Modern Ukrainian, they used the Latin script, which is another big cultural issue. But anyway, so this brings us to the um, First World War. By this time, Ukraine is, is the breadbasket of the Russian Empire, subsequently of the Soviet Union. After the First World War, the state of Poland, which had been out of existence for a hundred and something years after the third partition, the state of Poland is recreated. And again, when it, doing history, one of the things you've got to be very careful about is place names. Because Eastern Europe, I mean, place names are a nightmare. And they shift and they change depending on who's in charge. That's right. So Lemberg is, of course, Austro-Hungarian, Lemberg, Germanic. Lvov is Russian. Lvov is Polish. And Lviv is Ukrainian. And it's been all four. So Ukraine is the new Red Army, the Bolshevik forces move into Ukraine at the end of 1917 after the Second Russian Revolution. And there are various factions fighting there. For example, the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, was occupied by the Red Army, then by the Poles, then by the White Army, and then finally by the Red Army again. So it Ukraine was a scene of major warfare. And the White Army is the army of the bourgeoisie. Yes, the, the counter-revolutionaries. Yes. And again, if I can use some, a bit of literature here, there's a great play by Mikhail Bulgakov, a certain Soviet playwright, called The White Guard, which is about white Russians in Ukraine. And in fact, I remember this they're having a conversation and the white Russian commander says, speak Ukrainian. So we had all this going on. So Chris, just to conceptualise this, is it safe to say that during the Russian Revolution there was an internal battle in Ukraine itself, almost its own civil war that was going on, but with external parties coming in and influencing it as well, such as Poland and also the Red Army? That's absolutely right. And of course, the other thing that we mustn't forget is that in 1920, Poland actually attacked the Soviet Union and the Soviets pushed them back towards Warsaw in what J.F.C. Fuller, the, the military historian and theorist, described as one of the decisive battles of the Western world. And in that, on the Soviet command, there was a uh, former guards officer called Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who was one of their great military thinkers. Uh, so the Poles captured Kiev at one point, yes. Anyway, the, the Red Army moved into Kiev for the fourth time in 1920, and the Bolshevik government, as it was then, 
set up a puppet state, if you like, which they call the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, as opposed to the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic, which was the Moscow base bit. So is this to give an air of independence to try and keep everyone happy to a certain extent? Absolutely right. And from then on, things didn't seem so bad at first. But with the first five-year plan starting in 1929, the Soviets introduced the policy of collectivization, which meant that so-called kulaks, from kulak of fist, who were relatively wealthy farmers, had farms taken away and they were turned into collective farms. And it got worse because as a result of this policy of collectivization, there was famine. And a, a little personal note, at the bottom of my road here in London West 3, there is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which has got a memorial to the number of people who died, it's in the millions, as a result of the artificial famine in Ukraine between 1931 and 1934. So what do they mean by artificial famine? Do they mean that it was imposed due to political decree? Yeah, in other words, genocide. Ah. But it's described on the memorial as artificial famine. So I I thought that was an interesting um, observation for our listeners. Also during the 1930s, this huge amount of industrialisation was underway and in some ways this backfired because of course the first place that the Germans were able to overrun in 1941 was Ukraine. So a lot of these industrial plants and they were huge. If you look at a modern map of the river Dnieper of course you'll see numerous huge reservoirs But that's dangerous because don't use that map for the First World War because those reservoirs didn't exist. Anyway, huge dams, a lot of hydroelectric power. And overseeing this was the the Soviet boss in Ukraine. It was a guy called Nikita Khrushchev. I've heard of him. We've we've heard of him. Mm. If you love ancient history, then don't worry, we've got you covered. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of the Ancients podcast, the podcast for all things ancient history. And these are the only surviving boxing gloves from the Roman Empire. And the earliest surviving boxing gloves for over 1,600 years. So through this material, we're actually looking at this entangled sum of hundreds and thousands, in fact, of stories of life across ancient Eurasia. Baths of Cleopatra. I had never come across any such thing before. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, 1941, the Germans launch Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June. Under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet pact, the Soviets are going to get the eastern bit of Poland, but they don't start until a couple of weeks later. So they let the Germans do all the work and then they moved it, move in from the other side. That's Poland. But this means that the Red Army and the Germans are now right up against each other and there's nobody in the way. So 22nd of June, the Germans invade the Soviet Union and they attack north of the Pripyat marshes, Belarus, direct route to Moscow, and south into Ukraine, which is the breadbasket. And had Ukraine recovered by this point in terms of being a breadbasket? Because the famine is said to have killed, what, three, four million people known as the terror famine. It was during the 1930s. Was it able to fully recover by this point? Yes, because for all its faults, collective farming was quite efficient, particularly if, as a Russian newspaper would probably say, you know, when combine harvester production has gone up by 500% which is the kind of headlines he used to get. So the Germans moved through Ukraine rapidly, and they moved rapidly in part because many Ukrainians saw them as liberators. Oh, I see. Not all. Not all. And so, again, they broke up into, in, into various groups. You had... Red Army units, which had been encircled by the Germans, but they moved into the forests and became partisans. And they were actually supplied and controlled from Moscow by the Soviet intelligence services. But you had others who hated the Russians and joined the Germans. So you had Ukrainians citizens of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic who were fighting for the Nazis? Yes. Do we know how many? I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but there were quite a few. 
And one of the roles they were used for was as guards in German concentration camps. Um, there's a, there was a camp at Sobibor, and there, there was a television program about it. And one of the mistakes the Germans made was to put Soviet prisoners of war there, which the guards are Ukrainians, for example. And I have another very personal story, which I, I want to tell you as well. I was taught Russian by a lovely gentleman who at the Central London Polytechnic, as it then was now the University of Westminster, and he had a Ukrainian name. And he had actually been a teacher, I think, of German before the war. So when the war started, he was called up, obviously, and because he was bright, he was educated, he was sent to an officer training school. And, of course, it was an artillery officer's training school, wasn't it? And he was put in the Air Defence Artillery, ACAC, anti-aircraft guns. And the Strategic Air Defence, who, who would defend places like Moscow and Leningrad, but Air Defence Unit near the front. So he was sent to the front in 1942, fully trained, and captured by the Germans. And he didn't say what happened to him over the next three years, how he survived, what he had to do, maybe he was forced to do to survive. And, of course, you wouldn't ask him. No, of course not. So at the end of the war, he was then captured again in a German uniform by the British. Now, listeners may remember... Uh, there was a famous book, The Victims of Yalta, when after the Yalta Conference, which was in February 1945 in the Crimea, in the Crimean result of Yalta, it was agreed that former Soviet citizens, soldiers, fighting with the Germans, would be sent back to the Soviet Union. Oh dear. And many of them... They were either shot initially or they were sent to Siberia and died in the gulag. Anyway, on the train on the way back, my teacher had got on well with a, a British officer. And the officer said to him, listen, mate, if I were you, I'd get off this train. Quick. So he jumped the train and managed to survive living down and out in Vienna for about a year. And then he either got picked up or he gave up and he turned himself in to the British. And by this time, the Cold War was getting underway. And we were now looking at the Soviets as our enemies. And so the British said, you think you could teach Russian to some of our boys? Ah. Yeah. And so he started off by teaching Russian to British soldiers and, and diplomats. And then he moved on to the institution from which I got my Russian degree. So that is a very personal account on the basis of personal knowledge. 
and of course helps show us those shifting sands of politics and great power tensions that were happening during that period. So is at this point we can move through to the history of Ukraine during the Cold War? The history of Ukraine during the Cold War. After 1945, interestingly, Ukraine was actually a signatory to the original UN treaty. United Nations Treaty. So I didn't know that. That's okay. So as as an individual nation state, almost yeah. a kind of quasi autonomous status, which is very interesting. Yeah. If, effectively, of course, it, it was well very much part of the Soviet Union, and so it remained until 1991 when the Soviet Union broke up. In the interim, if we rewind a tiny bit. You'll remember I mentioned the role of Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev. Absolutely. uh, Who who had built his power base in Ukraine. Ah. So in 1954, Khrushchev, after Stalin's death, of course, and Khrushchev was in a strong position, he denounced Stalin. And in 1954, he thought he'd thank all his mates in Ukraine by giving them the Crimea. So until 1954, Crimea was part of the RSFSR, uh, the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic. Right, yeah. But from 1954, it was a part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Which didn't really matter. Is, is that semantics at that point? It doesn't matter too much. At that point, yeah, yes. It, it didn't matter at the time. I mean, it's like, you know, if you go from Oxfordshire in Wiltshire into Oxfordshire, you don't have to stop at a border checkpoint. Yeah. For example. But when the Soviet Union broke up in nineteen ninety-one and all the component republics of the Soviet Union became independent individual nation states, then it suddenly did matter. One of the um big issues, which we've alluded to already, uh, was, of course, the Black Sea Fleet, a very powerful fleet, one of four fleets, along with the Baltic, the Northern and the Pacific fleets. The Black Sea Fleet had actually been, was about it, based in Sevastopol, had actually been the first Soviet forces to open fire on the Germans in 1941, because armies of sort of disparate things scattered across the landscape had been stumbling around wondering what to do, the Soviet naval uh, minister had sent an order saying, alert state one, so that the Black Sea fleet was ready. So when they saw they got German bombers coming in, they were the first to open fire. Anyway. So the Black Sea Fleet was split about roughly, very roughly, 50-50 between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And the Russians did a deal to rent some harbour space at Sevastopol and adjacent naval bases from the Ukrainians. But then... Ukraine starts sidling up towards NATO, and this makes the Russians feel very, very uneasy. And so, in 2013, 2014, I beg your pardon, there's a lot, a lot of debate between people who should get out more, really, 
about whether this was a, a change in military doctrine or not, uh, sometimes referred to as the Gerasimov Doctrine after Valery Gerasimov, the Chief of the General Staff, who's still in post. Yes, this idea is of kind of hybrid grey zone hybrid warfare. warfare yes. Um, now, if you go into this, as I say, you should get out more, really. But if, if you go into this in enormous detail, hybrid warfare is now what the Russians say we are doing to them. <laughs> and they, they are now calling it nonlinear warfare, which is a phrase coined by one of Putin's advisors, who's a science fiction writer. So we get the appearance of so-called little green men who are in very up-to-date military uniforms, up-to-date military equipment, but not wearing any badges. And of course, they are pro-Russian partisans. Oh, yes. Or on leave from the Russian military, I think I heard at one point as well. That's right. But uh, I was doing an interview, actually, with one of the news channels when the report came in that they'd found ration packs, discarded ration packs marked armed forces of the Russian Federation not for sale. Now, of course, we would have buried them, but never mind. So the um, Russians annexed Crimea. They held a referendum which alleged that the majority of the Crimean population wanted them there. It was a fait accompli. And uh, the Russians got away with it. Yes, and have built a bridge since, of course, connecting it to the mainland. I was coming to that. Yes. yes. The Ketch is known as the Crimean Bridge. That's its official name. The second, second the referendum was Kerch Bridge, and the third one was Reunification Bridge. But anyway, it's the longest bridge in Russia. It's 11.8 miles long. It's mostly quite narrow spans. There's a big break in the middle, which ocean-going ships can get through okay. into, into the Sea of Azov. But effectively, it means the Russians can, A, block off the Sea of Azov, which is difficult for the mainland Ukraine, which is still Ukrainian, on the coast to the northwest of the Sea of Azov, because the Russians can close it any time they like. And so that... There had been a plan, actually, for a bridge since 1903, <laughs> but it was never never uh, instigated until uh, 2015, or one year after the Russian re-annexation. And so this is less of a bridge for Ukraine and more of a wall, isn't it? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a bridge for Russia. A bridge for Russia, a wall for Ukraine. Correct. It's got a, a motorway across it, which... Um, President Putin opened by driving a truck across it. Of course. course. I'm sure as an ex-Lieutenant Colonel in the KGB, he probably had a a HGV license. And uh, there's also a train link across it as well. One thing that might also happen is that one thing mainland Ukraine can do is control water, fresh water, going into Crimea from the north. Okay. So if I were the Russians, I would put a big water pipe across it, across the bridge as well. But we'll see about that. So there is currently a kind of a tit-for-tat response that can take place if the Russians were 
to shut that bridge off to supplies. There would be the complete cutting off of fresh water. I don't know about complete, but it's definitely an issue. Large proportions, yeah, absolutely. And this is the point where we, we sit today. It's this point where Putin has moved these hundreds of thousands of troops up to the border, vast amounts of military personnel and armour and supplies, and the logistic lines just go back into Russia. And we're here at this tense point. And I've got to thank you, Chris, for taking us through. It is always an education talking to you. You've taken us through this Ukrainian history from the Turkish Ottoman territory in Crimea in the 1700s, through revolutions, famines, world wars and cold wars up until this point. But I've got to ask you one final question. What can we learn from this history about potentially what's going to happen next here as we sit here in a tense period in in january 2022 as all intelligence reports are saying that there will be a winter war in ukraine what can we learn from this history well the first thing i would say is that if there's one country that really doesn't want a major pig iron war it's russia if you look the whole story of Ukraine, Ukrainian partisans, shows that this is not just about pig iron war, tanks, aeroplanes, all the conventional military kit. And I, actually, that reminds me of one final story I want to mention, which I haven't. In February 1944, the Soviet armies were advancing towards the river Dnieper in an operation that was called Right Bank Ukraine. And you talk about right bank means from seen from the direction of flow. So as the Dnieper flows into the Black Sea, the right bank is the east bank. So that's right bank Ukraine. One of the Soviet front commanders as an army group, Vatutin, had been visiting his 60th army and was driving back to his front headquarters and we're talking huge, huge formations here, of course, a front consisting of several armies. And they were ambushed by Ukrainian nationalist partisans called the Bandera. And the escort jeep in front was hit, and the senior officers in Matutin's jeep, probably provided by the Americans, piled out and fought back with their, with their pistols and whatever they had. And Vatutin was hit in the hip, and the Bandera seems to have been fought off. But Vatutin was badly wounded and was taken to Kiev and was attended to by the best possible surgeons, of course. But on the 15th of April, 1944, he died. So this is not a war just about tanks and aeroplanes. It was pro-Ukrainian partisans engaged in guerrilla-type combat and taking out a Soviet front commander. And I think that's a a kind of very good way of summarising the complex nature of these operations. It wasn't all about tanks and artillery and so on in 1944, and it certainly isn't now. And of course, it highlights that asymmetric power of more of a guerrilla response to great power militaries and their high-tech forces. Yes, and the, the Ukrainian groups of partisans in the Civil War did the same. That is always the response of the weaker side. 
and it may well be the response that we see in the near future. I think so, because in fact, I've seen reports that the Ukrainians are training civilians to, to use weapons uh, and so on. So, yes, but I think this is just to, on the part of the Russians, I think it's using military force to apply pressure. And if you want to do that, there's no better way than to assemble vast numbers of tanks and guns and planes because they're easy to see. But special forces who already infiltrated eastern Ukraine and are no doubt working with pro-Russian militias, I mean, they're already, but we can't see them. But we can see these tanks and aircraft. Of course. And we hope for a diplomatic solution as Biden and Putin continue to debate just what they're willing to give up to ensure that there is peace and not a continued and further violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. Chris, thank you so much for your time and for coming back on the podcast. You are, of course, always welcome on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you very much. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.